Hey there, welcome to Inside Redemption. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm one of the pastors that's part of the executive team of Redemption Arizona. And over these next few episodes, we want to bring you some special content that came out of an event that we did on September 21st, 2021, called Inside Redemption Live. It was a night that was focused on the body, sex, and gender identity. And specifically, what we're bringing to you in these next few episodes are some lectures from a few of our pastors that we uh, had present on that night and that really we thought were just remarkably helpful. So this first one is going to be from Seth Trout. Seth has a master's from Phoenix Seminary and a doctorate from Covenant Seminary, and he's one of the pastors at Redemption Church Gateway. And his talk is specifically about what is sex. What does it mean to have a body and to have a body that is either male or female? And he's going to go through some of the history and some of the um, different approaches that people have taken over the years um, from Christian perspectives and non-Christian perspectives, and I think you're going to find it really helpful. So here's Seth's talk, What is Sex? Good evening, everyone. Good to see you. I'm Seth. Luke just introduced me. Uh, I really wanted to begin this talk talking about what I think is the most disbelieved verse in the Bible when it comes to these issues, and that comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, which says there's nothing new under the sun. If you've been around for like more than five minutes, this stuff feels very new, especially if you've been around um, since before I was born, which a lot of you were, no offense, but I can just see it, I can tell. Uh, you, you're, you're going, how, how are these issues issues? Because they're not issues we could imagine. And this is, this is true for those of us who are under 40. The issues that we'll, the church will be dealing with when we're 70, 80, 90 years old will be issues that we can't even imagine right now. And it's just the nature of societies. It ebbs and flows and changes, and uh, the sun rises, the sun sets. But ultimately, there's nothing new under the sun. And so this first talk really is going to be about the body and its sexed nature, uh, the way that it's binary and male-female, but there are just the realities of living in a post-fall world where there are issues like gender dysphoria and intersex conditions, which make up about you know, 0.002% or 0.017% of the population, uh, respectively. And so we want to be honest about just the reality that we're talking about creation and fall and trying to di- differentiate those things in a, compl- in, a, in a contentious topic is pretty difficult. But I want to understand that, like when Jesus even says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, when he talks about the truth, that word in Greek, aletheia, could mean reality. That Christianity is a language, Christianity is a religion, Christianity is a teaching that deals with reality. It's sober. When you talk about like ethics, when you talk about how we should live, what we should do, what we should be about, uh, a lot of times in our current cultural moment, we stop at the layer of psychology how we experience ourselves and how we experience the world. But Christians wanna go a layer deeper past psychology to the layer of the discipline of what philosophers call ontology or ontological realities, which comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being or reality. We wanna ask the question, what is real? Not just how do we experience what is real, not just how do we experience ourselves, but what is the baseline foundation of reality? And this is what we believe in the Christian story that the, that the scriptures give to us. But this idea of reality, what is real, what is not real, or what is more real and what is less real, uh, is, is part of the history of what we've dealt with in our current cultural moment. And so thinking with me back far One of the things we're tempted to believe is that the Christian sexual ethic or the Christian understanding of what it means to be human, what it means to have a body, what it means to be a person, we're tempted to believe that these ideas that are taught by the scripture are newly controversial or newly countercultural, but they're just not. Since the dawn of the scriptures, the book of Job, probably the first book written all the way back to the time of Moses, 
the scriptures were giving countercultural exhortations about what it meant to be a person, what it meant to have a body, what it meant to be in the image of God. And even when the people first experienced the scriptures, when Moses wrote them after leaving Egypt, they had been indoctrinated and raised up in this view that what it meant to be a person was it meant to be a participant in the economic machine of Egypt. And all of a sudden, you receive Genesis 1, and there's image bearers. Going, what do you mean? We're representatives of God? That's new. That's countercultural. That's, that's fresh. But in particular, what I want to talk about tonight is the Western tradition of anti-body dualism. And when I say dualism, I mean this idea of body and soul. And so the entire Western society, going all the way back to Plato, has what I'm going to call an anti-body dualism. And so in Plato, we see this idea that the body is a tomb. Even there's this pun in Greek, soma, body, sema, tomb, that the Platonic teachers believed that the spirit or the soul or the psyche or the rationale was superior to the body or the flesh, which was a tomb and it was inferior. And so the mind had to overcome the body. And so when we think about our current cultural realities and we go like, how is it possible that people believe that psychology trumps biology? How is it possible that people think that someone's experience someone's like internal disposition supersedes some type of ontological reality or concrete reality. How is that possible? I'm going, well, that's, that's been around for at least 2,400 plus years. This idea that the body is a tomb and the body doesn't tell you who you are. Your mind tells you who you are. And that really to become fully human meant to fully live into what your mind and what rational process was able to set you free from the pathetic bodily experience. This is one of the reasons why in the first century, the most common heresy was Gnosticism, which a a form of that would be called Docetism, which comes from the Greek word diketo, which said Jesus could not have a body because the body is evil, the body is less than, the body is is disgusting. How could God take on a body? So they taught that that Jesus was just diketic, meaning he appeared to have a body, Docetism means appearance, or decato means appearance. So Jesus just looked like he had a body. Didn't really have one. Then going past Plato, this is not just like in the secular realm, but all the way in through Augustine in the Christian church, Christians have been obnoxiously anti-body for thousands of years too. It's not just secular thinkers, but it's Christians kind of being, being swept up in and tossed to and fro by traditions of secular thought that even in Augustine, St. Augustine, original sin, Augustine, predestination, Augustine, people that evangelicals love to claim, uh, he really had a bad view of sex and the body. So much as thinking that like sex was something that weak people had to do and it was kind of like a necessary evil uh, but he really prioritized the inner life and gave um, more of a, like, a, the, who you really were was your, your spirit and the way your spirit connected with God. He denigrated the body. So Augustine takes the Jewish tradition of pro-body stuff and tries to integrate it with Platonic thought and ends up having this low view of the body. And Augustine dominates for a very long time, but a lot of this kind of anti-body dualism gets um, ramped up pretty quickly. You can go to the, the next slide here. In through Descartes, a lot of you have heard of Descartes or Cartesian thought, Um, he's famous for this idea of I think, therefore I am, which is him mostly rehashing Augustine. But Descartes taught a strict mind-body dualism, and his eventual successor, um, Leibniz, also taught this, even that the mind and the body never interact, they just appear to interact. And so he even said that like this view that the mind and body interact is just social construct and something that we have to pretend exists in order to go on living within society. But what ends up happening with Descartes is this turn inward. Rather than looking outward to reality or looking outward to the sciences to define our reality, we looked inward to find God. And so God is this 
thing, this process in here. We look inward, we find him. And this is where the idea of like a priori or not from the senses, like or pre the senses, reasoning comes from. We can't trust our senses. We can't trust our body. We can't trust the taste, touch, feel, sight. We have to close our eyes and do philosophy in a, in a room and that's what we can really trust. This is, again, a version of anti-body dualism. And Descartes was a big leader in the church. And then moving on, um, pretty quickly, you have um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's the father of modern romanticism. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau taught that the human person was fundamentally good. So he kind of breaks from Augustine on that. The human is fundamentally good, but evil, bad societies come in and corrupt them. And so what ends up happening is instead of being shaped by society, we have to again turn inward and trust our own thoughts, our own processes, because deep down inside is our real authentic self that hasn't been corrupted by society. And we need to set that self free. And so this idea of the psychologized self in context contrast to the socialized self is part of what we get through Rousseau. But again, it's a looking inward and looking upward through being in and then putting off of the external things in order to be an authentic, true in me self. So you might have heard the term like this idea of the age of authenticity, that what, to, for me to be really me, I have to look inward, find me, and then let me out. Again, it's not my body telling me who I am, but it's my looking in the mirror into my eyes, past my person, into my disembodied self, and that's where I'm going to find who I am. Then past Rousseau, in the 1800, we have Charles Darwin. And what you get with Charles Darwin is this idea of chaos producing life or, or uh, the random mutations furthering human existence. And so in, in contrast with some of these previous antibody dualist thinkers, those folks still had some idea of like a, a, a design. God made things for a purpose or for a way. But with Darwin, all of a sudden, now there's no design, there's no telos, there's no end, there's no purpose. So what ends up happening now is rather than there being a purpose for humanity, now you must create your purpose. And the way you create your purpose, when like the Romanticism meets the Darwinism, is you must create your purpose because there isn't a designed one, and the way you find your purpose is by looking within and finding your authentic self and then releasing it. And then past Darwin in the 1850s, we have Freud. And Freud, um, if you ever read Freud or worked with him, what ends up happening is this idea of the self ends up going from just being a general psychologized self to being actually a sexualized self. You are your sexual desires. And Freud viewed society as this gigantic conspiracy to suppress and constrain sexual desires. And he kind of lamented this reality that for society to function, people have to restrain their sexual desires, but the good life or the meaningful life is actually to break free of society and release your sexual desires and, and live into your authentic, sexually um, desirous self. And so what happens with Freud is you go from having an authentic self to having an authentically sexual self. I mean, now it's no longer enough to just be yourself, but now you have to be your sexual self. And this turn inward goes from being something you're concerned with about just your psychology to now it's centered on and connected to your sexuality. So all of these antibody dualisms are building up steam, but over time they are authenticating and being located in the individual person and ultimately being sexualized. But the next phase we see with even in the Christian church is you have a guy named Darby who's kind of the founder of a certain classical branch of dispensationalism that actually kind of, so here's what Darby did was you end up having these mainline group of churches that were reacting against Darwinism. 
right? Darwinism was giving birth to all different forms of naturalism. So what ends up happening is the church trying to react against naturalism does the wrong thing, and instead of embracing a whole Christian vision of the whole mind-body person, you end up having this spiritualism. And now you're not your body and soul, you are your soul. And so you are what is rapturable. You're gonna leave behind your body and be catapulted off into this disembodied state, and that's really what you are. You are what is rapturable. You are not your body. And again, that's reacting against naturalism. You get this kind of spiritualism, and you're just gonna get whisked off and taken away from the earth. And at the same time, you have in the 1900s, go to the next one, um, fast forward a big chunk, because you have Judith Butler, who's the founder of modern queer theories. She really argues that this entire concept of sex, of bodies, of male and female, is a social construct and that it's always been this kind of designed system to uh, oppress women. And she goes back to Plato, which even Plato, in his legitimate sexism and misogyny, defined women by their absence of a penis, their absence of a phallus, and said, we're inheriting all this tradition from Plato, and we have to throw it all away. And so all that we are is this performed social construct, and even the idea of sciences and natural law can't be trusted or seen, and so it's all just performed. Everyone's on a stage, gender is just performed, sex is performed, there's no materiality to any of this. And so that's uh, a lot where a lot of more career theories happen. But then even going to the future, if you watch Netflix or if you read kind of books, there's this um, whole genre called transhumanism that we're seeing now that's not just you are what is rapturable, but you are what is uploadable. You can put up that next one there. Um, Harari, you, can, you are what is uploadable. You are what you can be uploaded. There's a series on Netflix called Altered Carbon where the person is their mind, their microchip, and you can take the microchip out and put it into different skins. And you can take the, the microchip out of a male body and put that microchip into a female body, and it's still the same person. And so what that's revealing is at least a public consciousness that says you are your thoughts, you are your cognition, you are not your body. And so there's nothing new under the sun. It takes different shape, it takes different forms, but for thousands of years, there's just been this, this repeated barrage, and now it feels like it's more prevalent because of social media, and everyone's always newly shocked by the next wave of adolescence. That's just kind of part of human nature. And, but there's a long tradition, nothing's new under the sun, of in the West people saying, your body doesn't tell you the truth about who you are, your mind tells you the truth about who you are. And so I want us as a church to not be frenetic and frantic about feeling like, oh no, new stuff, we don't have answers for it, but just this reality that the Christian vision for no, you are your body, your body tells you the truth of who you are, has been standing for a long time. And so right now, it feels crazy that people don't look into their pants to find out their sex, they look into their hearts to find out their sex. But that's been basically kind of going on for a long time, it's just newly sexualized. In contrast, I want to talk, talk to us about the Christian vision for the body. Um, what you see is Matthew 19 is this, we want to be followers of Jesus. As you go to Jesus, Jesus handles a, a complex ethical question, and Jesus' first move is to take us back to Genesis. So I want to follow Jesus to Genesis. And what we see in Genesis is actually these five pairings that tell us about what it means to be human, what bodily reality is all about, and what it means to live life in that body. And those five pairings look like this. The first one we see is image and likeness. Again, controversial to the folks who are just set from set free from slavery, who are told their whole life, you're nothing but your economic production. Um, you are here to contribute to the economic machine of Egypt, the empire, 
and instead they're told you're in the image of likeness, you are a physical representation of an unseen thing. That's a bodily thing we do. To be made in the image and likeness of God is to be a physical representative of an unseen reality. That's what images are. It's embodied. A lot of Christians think that image of God is something about having emotions and rationalization. That's Cartesian, that's from Descartes. That's from all this antibody dualism. You wanna see an image, you see it. There's the image, there's the image. If I showed you a picture of my son, there's an image of him. I'm giving you a concrete example of something that's not here. And so to be image of God is to be a bodily, present representative of what was otherwise unseen. It's an embodied reality. The next marker we see is subdue and dominion. These words subdue and dominion have to do with kneading of bread, of trampling grapes, of plowing fields. These are all things we do with our bodies. We subdue and form the earth and make culture with our bodies. Our bodies are obviously inhabited and spirited by our minds, but it's a bodily function, is to unfold what has been folded into the earth. The next one we see is fruitful and multiply. This is sex. This is making more humans. You do this with your bodies, not with your minds. If you're doing it with your minds, you're not doing it right. So the next one (laughs) is work and keep. Work and keep could be translated serve and protect. This has to do again with gardening, maintaining boundaries of a space, of pulling the weeds, of planting the seeds. These are all embodied acts. And lastly, what we see is this male and female. And so these five binaries, or these like hendieties, in other words, saying this, this is two describing um, this one reality, is that male and female come together to be a picture of the image of God. But all of these things, male and female, this is speaking to this reality that humans are sexually dimorphic, that there's XX and XY, that this is the norm. These are creational norms that shape what it means to be human. Now the absent, like the presence of abnormalities or aberrations or atypical forms of development is a given reality in a post-Genesis 3 world. But I just want us to know that the presence of abnormalities does not erase the norms. Humans are sexually dimorphic. Similarly, humans have two arms. That's like part of the, the genetic design. That does not mean that if someone is born without an arm or if someone loses an arm, that they're less than human. But we understand that it's typical or it's normal for humans to have two arms. Likewise, it's typical of male and female. This is why in the Matthew 19 text, when um, Jesus talks about that there are some who are born eunuchs, Jesus is acknowledging this post-Genesis 3 reality that there are some abnormalities or aberrations in development. And so kind of a cold, this is the standard. But again, that's about 0.07% of the population. And so erasing the binary norm, erasing the norms um, is not the answer there. So the question we have next, you can go to the next slide here, has to do, so Bavink's talking about this reality, is the body's not a prison, he's countering Plato. Bavink's a theologian, late 1800s. Body's not a prison, but a marvelous piece of art from the hand of God Almighty. And just as constituted for the essence of humanity is the soul, the body is one with the soul that peers through the eyes, thinks through the brain, grasps with the hands, and walks with the feet. Do you have that view of your body? A marvelous creation of God that mind and soul function together synonymously, that when you act, you act as mind, body, whole. Mind, soul, whole person. We can't really break ourselves out into our constituent parts because the soul looks through the eyes, moves with the hands, walks with the feet. Go to the next slide. 
it's worth noting here that as soon as rebellion from God takes place, the first thing we see the humans do in Genesis 3 is hide their bodies. As soon as there's separation from God, as soon as there's rebellion, the first symptom, not the first cause, is bodily shame. I need to hide. And not only that, but they use technology to hide. It's, it's significant. We're gonna make fig leaves from ourselves, hide our bodies from each other and from God. That that bodily shame dynamic is part of the very first implication we have of separation from God, is separation from others. And so bodily shame, again, bodily incongruence, this could be described as a form of dysphoria. Something's wrong, I need to unwrong the wrong. It's been around since the dawn of mankind plus a day or two. The next thing we see is bodily violence. You have Adam and, or you have uh, Seth and, uh, or Cain and Abel, not Seth. Seth didn't do it. Seth was fine. But Cain, <laughs> you, have, you have Cain thrashing Abel's body, right? And so I'm aware of in this discussion, even when you talk about sex, gender identity, sexuality, that like sexual violence is so incredibly common. And part of the reason why it's so hard for us to even have these conversations is, is for many of us, the real reason that this is difficult is not our own sexual confusion or frustration, but it's this sexual violence that's been inflicted upon us. And so the Genesis 3, Genesis 4, back to back, you have these bodily implications of brokenness. And so a couple of texts I want us to look at as well here, you can go to the next slide, is John 1.14. This is one of the reasons why we as a church have this high view of the body, even after the fall, is that Jesus takes on flesh. He takes on the body. He doesn't avoid the difficulty of the body, the waste of the body, the pubescence of the body. He doesn't run away from it, but he lives into it and he takes on flesh and he walks among us. And so even this idea that Jesus had to have his diaper changed, Jesus had to go through puberty, Jesus had to experience hormone fluctuations, Jesus had to, all of the things that we associate with just kind of typical developmental pain, Jesus did those things. Not only that, but in Romans 6, we see Paul describing our bodies as weapons or instruments of righteousness, able to be used for good, this is post-Genesis 3. It's not like after Genesis 3, all bets are off and it's just pure chaos. But this reality that even in our breaking, um, very dysfunctional bodies, they're still fundamentally good and weapons for righteousness. Also, what we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 23 is actually this, some of what we see is the, you know, the prudishness of a lot of our Bible translations. It could be translated that our genitals, which we assume to be dishonorable, we actually treat with honor and cover them in modesty. And part of the reason they're covered is because they're honorable, right? Whereas we tend to speak in euphemisms and get weird when we start talking about genitals and even like our evangelical tradition tends to get all queasy about this stuff. But the way that the authors of scripture describe like our sexual organs is that they are honorable, meant to be treated with respect and dignity, right? Do we train our toddlers to think of their genitals as having honor, respect, and dignity? Or do we say like, Part of it's our own sexual queasiness that make, passes on this kind of weird, I'm not sure if I should like my body thing to our children. Even after Genesis 3, the body's full of dignity and honor, even the parts that we treat with modesty. You can go to the next slide. Kuiper says this, in Romans 8, 6, Paul declares even more strongly that not setting one's mind on the body, but setting the mind on the flesh is death. Therefore, with the instrument of your body, you must crucify the flesh and combat its temptation. With the body against the flesh is therefore God's holy ordinance. A lot of the times we see this idea of like the flesh being bad, uh, what ends up happening is we assume that when, what Paul's talking about when we see flesh is that the body is bad. 
but this is one of the reasons why the NIV translates that word flesh as sinful um, disposition or sinful nature in different ways. That our body remains good, but it's actually our sinful minds that are bad. Part of what's happening in Romans 8, 6 is Paul is saying, let your body, an instrument of righteousness, trump your mind, a servant of the flesh. And so in contrast to this kind of current culture moment that says our psychology should trump our biology, what Paul's saying is like our psychology, our disordered affections and desires need to be trumped by our minds, which are servants of Christ. And so our bodies remain good. Our minds tend to be disordered. And that's not to say that our bodies don't also have disorder, but part of what we're called to do is to use our whole person, our body, as a way of resisting the way the mind is going astray and going disordered. So you can go to this next slide here. So what I'm going to say here is that our bodies are binary, they're male and female, they're part of the whole creation story, and this is part of like the concrete ontological reality. And not only are they binary, male and female, but they're also extremely beautiful, worthy of honor, dignity, and respect all of it from our head to our toes, to the parts seen and the parts unseen. And part of what we need to do as Christians is recover this beautiful view of the body and not be swept up in this anti-Western, this anti-body Western tradition. And lastly, that they are breaking. That the decay of the body, both in the womb and out of the womb, you know, you're, some say you're born and then you start dying. This Genesis 3 reality does not mean that we don't bear witness to the fact that we're the, in the image of God, even in the places where we're disord- distorted, um, broken, or breaking, or decaying, but actually, that actually is a testimony to the fall of sin and the way that we're looking forward, anticipating the return of Christ when he'll make our bodies new. So Christ takes on a body, he lives in his body, he's risen in the body, and our bodies will be risen as well. And what we want to do as Christians is be a foretaste of that new creation and living into our bodily reality. One of the things that Abraham Kuyper talks about, that true conservatism is conserving that which what will be in the resurrection and the last day. Meaning our bodies will be fully made new. Our minds will be fully made new. And so healthy conservatism is trying to conserve what we will become when Christ makes all things new, holding on to those realities. Thank you so much for listening to me talk about bodies, binary, and beautiful. Uh, And Josh is going to talk about what that looks like as we move into society here in a bit.